Well, I'm very happy for us to be connecting again as the Christ Journey family. Wherever you are making that connection with us, we welcome you. And I got to tell you, you know, I don't always feel so happy. Lots of happenings in our world that are not happy ones. But I do have some happy thoughts for you today that we will share together as the Christ Journey family, wherever you're joining us. The first one is this, Jesus promised that where two or three gather in my name, I am in their midst. And distance doesn't separate us from him. His spirit can meet with us, whether you're joining us right from your own living room or you're at one of our physical campuses today, that we are in his presence and with you there in his presence. And here's the, here's the next verse that I'd like to say. For those of you who are taking the step and, and stepping out to join us on one of our physical campuses, shout out to Kendall today, Gable's campus. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So it's wonderful to see some faces for the first time that I've seen you in over the, this quarantine period. God bless you for making your step forward to come out and feel the energy of God's people singing together and, and lifting our faith together. But the promise is there that when we are in his presence, the psalmist tells us that he forgives our sins, he heals our diseases, and he renews our youth so that our strength is restored like the eagles. So we're praying today that you would feel his lift in your spirit, in your soul, in your life as we gather in his name during this time. Now, John Williams is, uh, has been called the greatest film composer of all time. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected his score from Star Wars, 1977 score from Star Wars, as the greatest film score of all time. Uh, the themes are so distinctive, they're so compelling. So if I were to play some of them, for instance, you would recognize them right away, like this one. This one. <laughs> This is Luke, Luke's theme, main title, Luke's theme. Or this one, recognize this? Rebels, the rebel theme. Right? Um, and then how about this one? The Force. talk over that. I want, to, I want to feel that. Now, whose theme is this? Aren't you just transported in the moment? And of course, you've been waiting for this one. And whose theme is that? 
the gators. Is that what you said? The gators. No, that's Vader. Yeah, Vader. Vader's right. You know, part of William's genius is how he weaves these themes into such an incredibly expressive and moving work of art, a symphony that just carries us right into the story as it's unfolding. And when we hear the themes, we're suddenly there again. I was told by a uh, music professional out of the first, after the first experience here that there's a name for that, late motive. It was something that Wagner did and that Williams adapted for that score and then the others that he sent. But you know, this, um, it truly is a symphony of the people. And speaking of that, the Library of Congress entered the soundtrack into the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, close quote. Now, the reason I'm mentioning John Williams today, the composer, um, is because in 1 John 5, we're, we've been making our way through the epistle of John, and in 1 John 5, the fisherman apostle John does with words what John Williams, the composer, does with music in the score that we just heard, the music of Star Wars. Because what he does is he brings back all of the themes of the storyline that has been introduced in his letter, and now he's weaving them into this powerful counterpoint of spiritual communication and depth that will carry the listener into its reality. It's a work of art. It's a symphony for the people. And... Um, that work of art can change your life if you let it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, bring us into it. John writes chapter 5 to bring back all of the major themes that he's introduced already. And, and it's a kind of an inaudible soundtrack that just invites us into the storyline again, into the adventure romance of being a true child of God, a true follower of Christ. Now, many of us, perhaps you, are familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul. You've been reading along in the Bible, and you'll note that he writes in a very different way than John does. Paul writes in a more linear fashion. It's more like a news ticker that's following a train of thought from point A to point B to point C. It's like from there to this to that, which brings us to that. And so you follow in more of a linear chronology. John is not like that. John is more nonlinear. It's artistic approach. He sometimes makes these what seem to be sudden changes, this sweeping change, and then all of a sudden it's like he's doing two things at once over here. Nonlinear. He deals with multiple relevant topics, but he does it not in a bullet point chronology. He does it more in a gestalt-like expression, a holistic W-H-O-L-E. He wants us to see the whole experience rather than simply parts in sequence. So what John the Apostle does with words and John the composer does with music, John Williams, Rembrandt does with colors on a canvas. One of the pieces that I find particularly meaningful is the return of the prodigal son. And in that one masterpiece, what Rembrandt does is take all of the colors and bring the viewer into the experience of the story of the prodigal son. All of the themes from the prodigal son are in that masterpiece painting. So much so that Henri Nouwen 
just sat before that painting for hours upon hours upon hours and then wrote his reflections. He's written a little book about it called The Return of the Prodigal Son. If you have not yet read this, bless yourself by picking this thing up and then spending some time with it. If you're looking for a summer reading project, then this is an easy one that you're going to experience the expanding of your spiritual life in as you read through that. But it's, it invites you into the work of art. All of the themes of the prodigal story in one mass, magnificent masterpiece. And that's like what John is doing now in 1 John chapter 5. He's inviting us to encounter again everything that we have read, everything that we've been introduced to, everything that we've been heard right now in this chapter so that we might refresh it for our living. So what are the themes? Well, I'll throw a few out. The invisible God makes himself known through Jesus Christ. This is like major, this is where he starts. The invisible God makes himself known through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood. That means by baptism and crucifixion. He is a real human being in real life who really lived, died, and ministered in our midst. Verse 7, the Spirit, these three testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. God's Spirit was at work in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is testified to in the, the uh, crucifixion and the baptism of Jesus. And that gives testimony that we can believe from God, that we can trust. Verse 9, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. So the invisible God has made himself known through Jesus Christ. That's the theme. And now that's eyewitness testimony that can be verified by those that are present and then shared with those that weren't. Here's another theme. Through faith in Jesus as God's Christ, you can become a child of God. He weaves this through his writing. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus as God's Christ, you can become a child of God. So believing that testimony actually brings you into God's life and bring God's life into you. So Christianity is not a matter of pledging allegiance to a set of doctrines. It's not a matter of working up a rhythm of habits concerning religious rituals and rules. To John, he's saying this level of trust in what God has done in Christ will result in his spirit coming alive in you. You will be born of God, born of the Spirit. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 10, he who believes the Son of God has this to everyone, anyone, without exception, anyone who has this, who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. In other words, God's Spirit lets you know in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul, that God has come alive in you. And that's part of the evidence. Through faith, you have become a child of God. And then that reminds us of another theme that he's introduced. You can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wish and hope that your good is going to outweigh your bad and then the scales are going to tip and then maybe you'll get into heaven. No, verse 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God has given us. Eternal life 
This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. I pulled my wallet out and said to you, my money is in my wallet. Whoever has my wallet has my money. Why? Because my money is in my wallet. He who has my wallet has my money. This is what God is saying the same thing. Do you have Christ in your soul? Have you welcomed him into your spirit, into your life? Then you now possess the riches of God's life in you. And that is assurance that you have eternal life now. Not just when you die, but now and continuing forward. The Zoe kind of life, the full eternal quality of life that never stops living. And it's coming alive in you and is being seen in you. Which brings us to another theme. When you trust Jesus, the invisible God makes himself known visibly through you. Wait, doesn't that sound like, yeah, it sounds like the first one, doesn't it? Except now God is making himself visibly known through you. You're being brought in, woven into the experience. Verses one and two, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and by carrying out his commands. In other words, love shows that we are God's family. And then as soon as he introduces that theme, by the way, he spent a whole chapter on that theme, but as soon as he introduces it, he then sweeps us into another theme in verse that we've already seen. Verse three, and this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God, see, he brings that one back in, overcomes the world. What's that theme? Obedience creates victory over the evil one. Spent another chapter talking about that, didn't he? Yes, God's life raises you to victory, and we're growing to be overcomers. And then look what he does. He immediately loops it back in to other themes we're hearing. Verse 4b, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Everyone born of God, only he that believes that Jesus is is the Son of God. Now, if you're reading along in 1 John and a casual reader just staying skin deep on this and you're reading along, it's going to be natural to say this. Well, didn't I just read that? You know, you're reading along and suddenly you read this and you go, hey, didn't he already say that? I mean, where's he going with this? I mean, only, didn't he say that but only in a little bit different way? Yeah, he did. Well, is he repeating himself? Didn't I already read that? No. Yes, you did. You did read that. But he's got intentionality here, just like that weaver is bringing the threads of the story into a picture that's portrayed in the tapestry, the threads of his tapestry, to bring us into the story. What John is doing, he's not just listing facts. This is not a bullet point agenda for your next business meeting. He's weaving us into the fabric of God's story. And so when we're reading his letter, we're reading it as if it's part of us. We're part of it. And he says, and this is your victory, victory over sin. Now here he calls it obedience to God's commands without burden. Have you ever had that experience? That you're actually doing what God wanted you to, but it doesn't feel heavy? It doesn't feel like it's a drag on you or God's cracking the whip on you or telling you going to catch you doing something. No, you're doing it and you're loving it and it's lifting you. Yeah, that's what overcoming feels like. That's what victory feels like. Victory over the evil one. 
and God's life is showing through your life. So, little summary of the flow of his portrayal right here. F, faith brings you into eternal relationship with God. And then love, L, love shows that you're one of his children, shows you and others. Obedience then brings victory over the evil one because we're overcoming the world. And then all of these bear witness to others so then they can make their own decision too. You've become part of the story that's now sharing the story so that they can join the story too. Is that cool? Verse 13. Verse 13, so that this can be true about them. I write these things. This is the purpose for John's letter. He said, if you're wondering what the letter's about, here it is. I write these things to you who believe in the name. Now, name represents character or what our marketplace mentality would tell us is brand confidence. You know what brand confidence is? That brand confidence that engenders loyalty so that you keep going back to the brand that you believe in because it keeps delivering the quality that you desire. That's what name means here. The name of the Son of God, the character that you can trust in God's brand in Jesus is so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then God's life is now spreading in your life and through your life, and that confidence rises up and a new assurance rises, keeps giving you hope to keep moving forward. It's a beautiful work of art. But don't miss this, because this is your birthright, this is your destiny as a child of God. Your life becomes art by God. You, you become the canvas, your life. You become the, um, the raw material from which he shapes and, and carves. You become the, uh, the manuscript on which he composes his music and then from which he can perform his masterpiece in the world. Now, we mentioned earlier in the series um, some of the author's backstory who had written this letter that we now have in our Bibles, John the Fisherman. He was a fisherman. He was a working man. That meant he spent every day in the sun. So he would feel the sun's rays. He would show the sun's work in his face, in his skin. Every day he would be outdoors. His boat would be in the water. His arms surely were rippled with the lines of somebody who had done numerous, countless repetitions, reps, working his biceps, his triceps, throwing the line, bringing it out, you know, bringing in the net again and again and again. He and his brother James were among the very first disciples to be called. Actually, number three and four of the 12, they were called as number three and four. Both probably teenage men at the time. Both of them were pretty rough-hewn. They were known to be rowdy to the point that Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. It's like, where they go, you could feel the rumble. Something was going to be disturbed. John and James were the disciples that I've mentioned before who wanted to call down fire from heaven when there was a village that rejected Jesus' ministry. And just, you know, Lord, burn them up. That, the world can afford to lose a village full of undesirables like that. If they don't have sense enough to trust you, then why don't we just call some fire down from God and nuke them? This was John and James. 
And at the time, Jews did not like Samaritans. I mean, they felt that they were racially, ethnically, morally, and spiritually compromised people that the world could do without. So nobody's going to miss them. And by the way, when James and John, the sons of thunder, were saying that about other people in their world, they were agreeing with the majority viewpoint of their day about the Samaritan people. Now imagine 14 years later, and uh, John, who wrote the letter, has just lost his brother of thunder, James, to the government blade of King Herod Agrippa, who has beheaded him in the first wave of persecution against the church. Don't you know John felt the loss of his brother, that he just got killed for Jesus, doing the right thing, and then had his life taken. And it would just be one of many of those adversities and injustices that would come his way, as Jesus said they would, that John would live with all the way up to his very senior years. Scholars say he was probably the uh, longest surviving of the 12 original disciples. He died last. But in his senior years, he was banished into exile on the Isle of Patmos. Now, some of us feel like we've been banished into exile during COVID, you know? You're in isolation. You don't get to get out. You don't get to do what you want. This is John as a senior adult, but during that time has the experience of the revelation. This is, but this is some of his story. I'm thinking Jesus saw John, this uneducated, rough-hewn, competitive, proud fisherman. What did he see? What did he see? I just lost my microphone, guys, so you want to switch me over? We got a backup for times like this. Um, now we'll see if the backup does what the backup does. If not, I've been known to project. So, okay, I'm going to keep on going. You guys, you guys find out. It's, it's the board, it's not me. Hallelujah. You know, a lot of things around here wind up being, it's you. <laughs> so... So it's nice when it's not. Um, the David by Michelangelo is considered art's most admired statue. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. But maybe you don't know the story behind it. Michelangelo was actually one of many sculptors that were offered the opportunity. The others refused it. They saw the piece of stone, the marble from which they were supposed to do their work, and they passed on the project. Others did. It was misshapen. They rejected it, didn't think that uh, it was, they, did, they just ignored it. But when Michelangelo saw it, you know what he said? There is an angel imprisoned within it, and I must set it free. And now I believe it holds the distinction of being the most photographed sculpture in history. I'm thinking when Jesus saw John, <laughs> there were so many reasons he could have passed him, passed over on him, rough-hewn, reasons to reject him, misshapen. He was competitive. He was proud. But Jesus sees a diamond in the rough, this kind of artistic potential, artist in the making, 
the kind of artist that would be under construction, who but Jesus would look at a fisherman like John and, and see in him that that man has a future as an author and an artist with words, through whom this son of thunder would bring the refreshing springtime of spiritual rain to pour upon lives and cultures for centuries. I'm talking about John, of course, and the fact that this John was the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, gave us the magnificent gospel of John and also the fascinating revelation of John. This fisherman, John, one of the sons of Zebedee, the son of thunder that wanted to zap a village out of existence, the one that raced Simon Peter to the tomb on resurrection morning because of the competitive nature. You can read some more in there. Andrew and Peter were the first disciples, the two sons of Zebedee, the next, that Jesus invited to join him in this adventure of fishing for men. I'm thinking, I'm just wondering, how many times did John think about that, think back to that moment on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called him out and thought, and, and then wonder in awe of how far he had come. What has happened to my life? Maybe you have too. When you look back on where you were and where you are and, and where God could be taking you, that you have reason to pause and just say, wow, thank you, God, for your work in my life. How many times had John told that story so that somebody else could have a chance to have their story? You know, I was so full of myself and yet still empty I was working hard, but I was going nowhere. <laughs> and then Jesus called me, and I said yes. And oh my goodness, what a ride. He showed me what love is. He helped me know God. This is John's story. He's made so much more out of my life than I ever dreamed could be. I thought I'd be hauling nets. You know... On the outside, I may look to you like a piece of coal, dirty and throw away, not worth much, but I'm telling you, Jesus saw me as a diamond in the rough, a diamond in the making, whose value is declared by a calculation that can only be expressed in the sacrifice of infinite God in Jesus Christ. What does all of this mean to you? How about this? For you, the invisible God made himself known through Jesus Christ. For you. Why? You ever wonder? Why? Why did God do that for me? So that through faith in Jesus as God's Christ, you could become a child of God. But why? Why you? Well, so that when you so that you can know that you have eternal life. You don't just have to wish about it. You can know. But why? Why does God want you to know? So that when you trust Jesus Christ, the invisible God could make himself visibly known through you too. So somebody else could too. Why? So obedience, your obedience, would create victory for you over the evil one. But why? Because God is such an artist. He wants your life to be art by God. 
a masterpiece in the making so that hope can be brought to a world that's hurting. Our world hasn't stopped hurting since then, hurting in a lot of different ways today. Maybe in, uh, in ways that you're feeling personally, can I tell you something? God sees your life as a masterpiece in the making to make a difference that maybe you have never even dreamed. John's story is one of God developing his untapped potentials through the challenges and adversities that he faced so that he could become all that we have experienced in this. I'm thinking now of a friend who was taking care of her elderly parents. Her mother had dementia. Her father, a stomach-feeding tube. And as she was caring for them in her daily caregiving, and she was watching them as they came closer to the end of their lives, she told me, I just talked with her last week, she said she started painting as a way to cope with the pain. She said it was uh, probably the, it was a very painful time in my life. You, you could say that I was seeking God through the realism of what I was painting in the midst of slow death. It was very painful in, in my life. And painting became a creative outlet that allowed me to deal with what I was going through. Actually, the hardship, the adversity, the sense of, of difficulty was what brought the discovery of a gift that she never knew she had, the gift of painting. And now her work uh, graces many walls and homes and businesses all across the region. Lisa and I have two in our home in the front living space. And um, here are some that maybe you've seen. Each one, right by her signature, she also includes a biblical reference so that the viewer would be invited into a larger story of God's creative reality that they might find hope from the beauty and the wonder and the power of God. Her name is Janet Moker. And um, not only is she an artist, you know what she is? She's a work of art by God. And so are you. So are you. The scriptures tell us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Others may see you and pass. Others may think that there's too much missing, a misshapen piece of rock from which what good could come? and then reject you and pass on you. Can I tell you, Jesus does not. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he sees you as a work of art through which his artistry can continue to bring healing to a world in need. Would you pray with me? And may I invite you to lean in to whatever the Spirit is telling you right now, to believe the name of Jesus, to trust God's brand, to be faithful in quality to meet you, to believe God's truth, that you are a person of great worth in His eyes, not because of what you've done, but your value is declared by what He has done. 
and that you have potential that he is wanting to develop and tap and unleash. John the fisherman could never have known that we would be still reading his letter today and drawing such hope. Lord, we just thank you for what you are doing in the lives of your people, and you're still doing it. And we pray you would do it today for your sons and daughters in this place. And we're especially praying for someone who just has that sense that could it be, could it be for me? Then would you trust Jesus today? You can begin your journey simply by saying, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. I receive you by faith. And I yield my life to you that you might do your work in me. Lead me now as I pray in your name. Amen.